You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, Matt and I are joined by two engineers in Docker's leadership, Chief Technology Officer Justin Cormack and Senior Manager of Developer Relations Michael Irwin. I've known Justin since I got involved with Docker in 2015, and he's one of the smartest and most helpful people I know. He's so willing to help, in fact, that the Docker captains nominated him to receive a rare honorary Docker captainship in 2017 because he spent so much of his time as a Docker employee helping the captains and community leaders, which wasn't really in his job description. He's just always been a supporter of the Docker community. Now, in case you didn't know, you can't be both a Docker employee and a Docker captain, as the captain title is reserved for just volunteers who spend their time educating others and leading the Docker community, which is why he's an honorary captain. Anyway, it was a lot of fun giving him that award, and Justin's a great guy, and I always learn something when we hang out. Meanwhile, Michael Irwin is a former Docker captain who became a Docker employee years back. Remember that whole, you can't be a captain and employee thing? Well, he had to surrender his captainship when he became an employee, but I still think of Michael as a captain because we both live in Virginia, where at one point we had six captains within a three-hour drive. And I've lost count of how many times we've both been at the same conference or meetup speaking about Docker. Both of these fine people have been on the show multiple times over the years, keeping us up to date on Docker product announcements. Now, let me give you some context before we dig in. It may only be four months into 2023, but there's so much going on at Docker that we couldn't fit it into a one-hour show with Justin and Michael. Our conversation will be mostly around the early releases of Docker Scout, a security product that I'm excited to talk about, a new release of the technical preview of Docker plus WebAssembly, aka Docker plus Wasm, and the just-announced telepresence extension for Docker Desktop. What we didn't have time for were two topics that I want to highlight real quick before we get into it with those guys. First is Docker's version 23 release of Docker Engine and the Docker CLI from February 2023. This is the first major update to the Engine and CLI in almost three years. After going through the release notes, I'd say most of the new features are fit and finish type things that the average user probably won't notice. But a few highlights include, BuildKit finally becomes the default builder for the build command on all instance types. This is important because BuildKit has been the best way to build Docker images for years now, probably at least five years. And it's great that it's finally the default on all the install ways you can do it. Second, Docker can now run alternate containerd shims to start a container, which means you can now configure Docker run commands to run containers inside of Gvisor and Kata containers. Pretty great. Third, Docker Engine and CLI are going back to semantic versioning format with this release. If you've been around long enough, you'll remember that Docker started with Simver way back in the early days. Then they went to date-based versioning 
similar to Ubuntu, and they're now returning to their roots with version 23.0. Next up, Swarm's got some new features, including jobs support in stack files and experimental support for using Kubernetes CSI drivers for Swarm storage. I'm hoping to have a future show this year on Swarm updates and the plans that the Mirantis team has for SwarmKit. Exciting stuff. Lastly, there are lots of old deprecated features that were finally removed and other features that were now marked as deprecated. For people upgrading old servers, one issue that may get you is if you're still using old storage drivers, which is really anything other than the default overlay to storage driver. Now this isn't about volume storage, but rather about the storage driver Docker uses for your container image layers and how it presents those to your applications as a unified file system. Old drivers like Device Mapper and AUFS will now require explicit opt-in to work. So if you blindly upgrade servers still using those older storage drivers, Docker won't start until you opt in. This is by design because all these old drivers were already deprecated years ago and are close to being removed from the install in a future release. So the Docker engine maintainers wanted admins to manually acknowledge that they're using an outdated driver before a future upgrade could render them unable to even access their existing images and containers on their servers. The show notes have links to all the details about the 23.0 release. The second topic I wanted to summarize was Docker's announcement and then retraction of a plan they announced to require anyone with a free Docker Hub organization to move that organization to a different plan. For a few weeks, it was something a lot of open source maintainers discussed because the announcement wasn't well communicated and it seemed like Docker was giving all of us maintainers 30 days to either delete our free Docker Hub organizations, subscribe to a paid plan, or apply for some special open source project considerations. I even previously had an entire live stream about it and then put out a special release podcast episode on it where I just monologued for 15 minutes about all the details and frequently asked questions because I wanted to clear up any fear and uncertainty around the change. As time went on, I had some inside access with Docker management and was learning that things were not as bad as they had seemed in the first days after the announcement so I did a lot on Twitter and on this show to help answer questions and reduce the confusion. Ultimately, however, just days after releasing that podcast episode, I removed it because Docker had listened to all the feedback and reversed their decision entirely to change that free organizational plan for existing users. Today, if you have a free organization on Hub, it won't be touched. Docker publicly apologized in a blog post and then refunded any money people spent upgrading their plans to avoid deletion. This whole topic has become a nothing-to-see-here-move-along moment. While it's a shame Docker so poorly announced what was ultimately considered a bad idea, I do applaud them for having the humility to publicly apologize, stop any plans they had for changing the existing accounts, and then refund any money they received from the organizations. Whew, okay, now those two topics are out of the way from Q1 of 2023, so let's get to our discussion with Docker leadership on the latest features of Docker Desktop and Docker Hub. So please enjoy this discussion with Justin Cormack and Michael Irwin. All right, so another thing about Docker Captains is we get previews of upcoming features and releases. And we recently had a conversation about telepresence. Boom. And this is the telepresence that we've all known about for years, right? The open source project for developing remotely on Kubernetes, right? 
Yeah, it's been around for a long time. I think it was the first project in the CNCF sandbox, maybe I can't, years ago. It's been, if you knew it back then, it's been totally rewritten since the original version. I remember it, used to, it was originally in Python. It's, it was an early thing, and then they rewrote it in Go and made lots of improvements. It has been around for a long time, but it's also, if you haven't tried it recently, it's, it's been improving all the time. And we've always been able to use it locally to talk to Kubernetes remotely. What does this mean for us with Docker? So I can jump in. And in fact, actually, maybe do you have the blog post oh, there yeah. as well? Mm -hmm. So this blog post, is a, it's a guest post from Daniel Bryant, who's the head of DevRel over at Ambassador Labs. There's a couple specific things here. One, you can use telepresence alongside your Docker toolchain. So we just make it easier to integrate and to leverage telepresence. There's a, an updated desktop extension that's going to make it a little bit easier. The second one, you can now buy telepresence directly from Docker and use your Docker ID and credentials to access it. So you don't have to have yet another set of credentials and everything too. So for companies that are, for example, already Docker customers or whatnot, they can add this capability to it and leverage their same credentials, et cetera. And then we're also helping provide support and services around it as well too. So this is, again, just the start of this, this journey here as well. We're pretty excited about it. So it's just basically taking telepresence and more deeply integrating it into the Docker desktop tool chain and feature set, making it easier to leverage and to use. And uh, I mean, seeing that this blog post was written by the folks from Ambassador Labs, it's a close collaboration with them as well, too. So excited to be working with Ambassador Labs and all the great things that they're doing as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, we've known them for a long time. We've always liked working with them. Daniel, one of the, one of the people in London who always see around and always like talking to them. We've had a very common view on the developer experience for working with Kubernetes needs to be better and that working together on telepresence is a really good way to improve this, help people work with Kubernetes more effectively, help people get their applications into production more easily, understand what's going on, how they work, and have that mixed experience across your kind of dev cube cluster and your local desktop seamless way. Yeah, I think that at some point in everyone's Docker journey, there's that question of, should I switch from Compose to Kubernetes for development? It's one of the most popular questions in my courses. I have the question often for my own clients, myself, and sure. I'm just so warm and fuzzy in Compose that I just want to, you know, I don't really want to leave the world of Compose, especially now that we got it built in a Docker, it's written in Go, it's fast, it's got new features. But the reality is like, I, I can't always run everything locally. I don't have, I, I know teams where their, their databases are so large, their data sets are so big that they can't really do it on their local machine. And they need it elsewhere. Can one of you describe to me a little bit about that with Telepresence? I mean, I also just going to say that for a lot of people, their organization chooses what, how they're going to ship to production. Unlike you, they don't have the luxury of making that decision. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages for a large organization of using Kubernetes for its scale. And, but, you know, we all know that the developer experience for Kubernetes could be better. Telepresence is just one of the ways we're exploring around how to make it better. We're exploring other things as well. This was something that we identified that was, it would be good to work with ambassadors on, on this project because we think we could bring something that's easy to use now, but we're working on a, a whole lot of other solutions around making Kubernetes easier as well. Yeah, that's been a question. Again, this is all going back to students and clients. They're still a little fuzzy about how much in Docker Desktop, like they know they have Kubernetes there on Docker Desktop, but there's a lot of these questions like, how do I get this Kubernetes to talk to another Kubernetes? Can I run multi-node Kubernetes? What are all the things I can do in my local Docker Desktop? And at some point there's limits. It just, a local Kubernetes can't solve all problems. 
And uh, telepresence is, uh, to me, like it's a gr- part of a group of these tools that allow you to develop locally as if you're local, but part of the solution is remote and you don't actually have to micromanage yeah. it. Like I see so many poop people doing with kube proxy commands and five different terminal windows and where they've got one for each thing they need and sort of someone that has to set up AWS solutions for them so that they can just simply develop and sort of the old school way of wait for the IT people to give you your AWS stuff. What's the elevator pitch for telepresence specifically? If I'm someone who's got Kubernetes in production, I have Compose locally, and I'm thinking about switching to Kubernetes. Yeah, what's that about? Yeah, so, I mean, again, there's a couple of different reasons you might want to use Kubernetes for your development environment, but, and you even mentioned one earlier, okay, if you're working with large data sets that just can't simply move, or you've got a microservices um, application that's just got lots of integrations and lots of different things, some of our systems are just getting so complicated that it's hard to even run it all locally as well too. So th- there's a lot of different reasons that you might want to actually use Kubernetes for development. But so what Telepresence lets you do is still have your local development tool chain and be able to develop locally, run your containers, run your applications locally, but basically connect your local application into your remote cluster. So for example, if I'm developing an API, I may want to be able to test my API changes without actually having to deploy them, go through CICD and all that works, or swap out whatever's in my development staging environment, et cetera. And so what Telepresence would allow me to do is to run that API on my local machine, but basically update some traffic config in my cluster so that when I'm making requests, rather than going to the API that's deployed in my cluster, it's actually forwarding that request back to my local machine. And so my development instance of the API on my local machine is the one that's actually handling the request. So it's kind of extending the Kubernetes network down to your local machine in a way and allowing you to connect your local services as if it were deployed into the cluster so that you can test and and do development, et cetera. And there's a variety of different ways that they call them intercepts. And there's a variety of different ways that you can set up those intercepts, whether it's a global, like all requests are going to go there or you have to have a special header so there's a couple different ways to set that up. But again, it allows you to basically just focus on the service or the things that you're wanting to change and then hook into the larger ecosystem of your application that may de- be deployed in, into your cluster. Yeah, that's it's pretty cool. And it's one of those things where I feel like I'm going to have to actually start using it to fully yeah. understand the benefits of just those intercept commands and how I can quickly jump into a cluster remotely without a lot of the local stuff that we're like all, all the other separate tools that we're all used to. Well, this is cool. One of the things I'm c- kind of confused about is I look at the ambassador webpage and they talk about telepresence business, but you also look at telepresence.io and it's definitely an open source product. But then you, that those three bullet points that you called out in the blog post, I only saw the buy, which implies that more the business level. Is there also a way of starting out with it on the pure open source route or do I have to do I have to buy this to get access to this kind of functionality in the Docker side? Yeah, so, so there's a couple different things going on. So it is, I'm trying to see if it was written in the blog post. I think it's just on the main page. The telepresence for Docker page, at the bottom of the page, there's a plans and pricing section. Okay. So that there's a basic plan. So for team members up to three, yep, you can use it for free. And then greater than three, then that's a sales conversation at this point. Okay. 
yeah, if you're just a yeah lone developer, you want to try this out, play around with it, or you know, yeah, a team up to three, by all means, yeah, play around with it and try it out. And it's more than just a. I mean, I guess I've been able to use something like Cloudflare tunnels or whatever they call it to get access. It's it, there's more to it than just a tunnel to my Kubernetes. Yeah, absolutely. No, because as Michael was saying, you can. It's the piece about being able to route some or all of the traffic from a service into to be served out of your laptop, which is that it's just that's the bit that makes it easy. It's not just connecting; it's right. routing. It's routing the traffic through to your service. So it's, it's, so it's, it hooks into the Kubernetes network routing and things as well. So it's not just tunneling. Cool. It's basically putting you kind of seamlessly into the into that cluster on your laptop. Yeah, and Ambassador Labs has some pretty good docs and write-ups of kind of the technical behind the scenes as well, too. So it, maybe we'll just have to have a whole show dedicated to telepresence cool. and do demos and yeah. dive in and deep. Or well, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for, for Bryce's course on it. <laughs> 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 I need a course first, and then I can teach a course. How about that? When it says a team of three, is that I'm trying to imagine what the collaboration is? Is that so that I can they can access the stuff I'm doing from their machine? What is the team aspect to? Is it just a single cluster that three people can share? Or yeah, so there's again, there's a couple of different ways those intercepts can be configured and, and plugged in. So again, imagine I'm developing an API, and you're doing the front end, for example. If you're wanting to test against my API, I can put an intercept in place so that API requests are coming to my machine so you can test out changes or whatnot. But one of the other options for intercepts allows me to say, hey, requests that have a specified header go to my machine. Otherwise, they default to the API that's deployed in the cluster. And so there's a couple different mm. options there. And that can be shared, not just for my own settings, but I can put that intercept in place hand you that header. And so again, request going into that cluster, if it's got that header set, will land at my API. So it allows teams to collaborate, even if you're not the one necessarily running the service that's being intercepted. Okay. Yeah, because sometimes you want people to test your changes. Sometimes you've broken yep. it so badly that you, you you don't want people to test that. To so there's, you know, so there's different setups that are useful depending on how much you, how badly you've broken it and yep. what 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 you know what stage of development you're in. Right? Nice. I feel like I'm just going to have to try it again because I, I think every like you said earlier, probably the last time I tried it was back when it first was announced. It was. It sounds like it's quite a different, a little bit of a different product now, or rewritten or something. And I, I tried Octeto back when in its early days, and I think Kelsey Hightower put out about a little tiny little tool, a simple little command line tool for just tunneling a, a single service to a local machine only. And so there's a growing number of these solutions. Obviously, we got NCAT, other things that solve part of the problem of mm -hmm. remote development. Does telepresence help me deploy the cluster at all? Or do I have to have that cluster going on my own? I guess you're saying that the Docker solution is that you're giving us clusters. Is that what you're saying? I'm not sure. What's the deal with the cluster? Yeah. So at this point, you still have to have a cluster up and running. And okay. there's there's Helm charts to deploy and set up telepresence and whatnot. So there's still a little bit of setup in order to actually fully utilize the capabilities. Again, you've got to have traffic managers and that kind of stuff in place. So there is some in-cluster setup that's required. Okay. All right. So a Helm chart, a telepresence Helm chart on any cluster that I can access somehow. Yeah. And then that, yeah. that lights yep. up the features. Yep. And is that Helm deployment chart thingy, is that the plugin and Docker desktop, the extension, sorry? What's the extension doing for us? 
the extensions help helping you do the connection from the user point of view. The helm, the, okay. the helm chart bit. I mean, it, a lot of people, the end, the end users don't have access to it by the helm charts. That is, it's right. you know, about there, but there, you know, someone else probably aims that. It, dep- it depends on your organization and set up. And for a lot of people, we're assuming that there's someone else is going to have to set it up for you, but then you'll be able to access it easily. Yep. And so, yeah, the extension is just going to make it easier to configure your intercepts and preview URLs and the various features that come along with it. So is the is your piece helping me? If I'm on, on my machine, I've got Docker Desktop running, I'm building out my container on my Docker Desktop, and I'm connecting to a cluster somewhere out there in the cloud, is that what is helping me with that? Or is it also helping me with, you know, I'm that same person and somebody else has Docker Desktop with Kubernetes running in it, and I want to connect to that? Is that... Is that no, part of the scenario? No. Well, you might be able to connect. You, probably, yeah, you might be able to do that, but that's not the scenario we're thinking of. Okay. Yeah, we're thinking of a, a cluster in the cloud. Yeah. We have been Good. thinking about these things, about connecting one Docker desktop to another and things like that. It's one of the things you can express around with the tail scale de- desktop extension and things like that to, to share containers between laptops and things like that. It's, there's some kind of interesting yeah. use cases there. And I think that it's definitely something that we're interested in, like how, how do people, what kind of things do people need to help work with their, with other people at that team to help build applications together. And if you've got ideas about that, we're really interested in this space. Or problems, ideas, anything, just give us some feedback. We're really interested in talking. And how did this come about? Did, I mean, somebody at Docker initiate this relationship or was it the other way around? And how long did that take? I mean, was it, how long has this product been, I guess, in development, if you can say? It's been, we started talking, I think it was, I think we, it was late last year, we started seriously trying to work out what shape it should be. We'd be, we got a lot of feedback from customers about the problems they were having with Kubernetes. We, we'd been, we are spending a lot of time trying to understand what developers need to help use Kubernetes. And this was one of the kind of directions that we were led down. It was like, hold on, this, yeah, this is a problem. And there's a solution out there that, you know, is interesting. And the Telepresence desktop extension has been around for quite a while. It's one of the most popular ones. So we got a bunch of signal from that, that people were using it already. And maybe, so that was a, also, should we do some more work on making a closer integration here. We get a lot of information about from which extensions people are using to try to help us get more feedback about what kinds of features. And we get a lot of feedback from the extensions feedback button and form you can fill in about on the extensions about what extensions do you want. We have a Slack channel that feeds in those and we spend a lot of time talking about, oh, if these people want this, it's really important. So we, we, that we really value that feedback. And so IntelliPresence was one of the first extensions. Actually, we I think it was the first extension we started working on like a year before that, because again, we'd identified that they were developer focused company as well. We know them well in the ecosystem. And so I think they were the first company we started talking to about when we started building extensions, like going out to the community and saying, well, what, what kind of things we build. So it all, in, in that sense, it started even a year on it. And am I using, if I'm the developer building out my container on my Docker desktop, to get it over to that cluster, am I using kube control on my side or am I just using Docker commands? Am I on the command line or is it purely in this uh, uh, extension? I mean, so intercepts can actually, you can do intercepts to really anything on the local machine. So for example, if I can have a container running on my local machine, I, you might even be able to just do it with straight up, just any process that's on the host that's 
got a, uh, an exposed port. But yeah, so I, I can run my applications on my local machine, whether I'm using Compose or I'm just doing a Docker run or you know, launching Kubernetes, it, it doesn't really matter as long as there's a network connectivity path, an exposed port there. And then, yeah, put the intercept in place. And so, yeah, the extension helps set up those intercepts. Of course, that's going to be more focused towards the container exposed applications. But, uh, but yeah, you can connect a variety of different things to the cluster. Cool. I got to play with this. Yeah. <laughs> I guess w- we just need to have another demo day on this, on telepresence and yeah. bring in some real workloads and talk about it. Because I think that maybe people would help be, it would help them to understand in my workflow how exactly is this going to solve my existing workflow problems? And like, what complexity do I already have today that this would simplify with Docker Desktop? I'm, and I'm looking forward to that because I want to. I always like to look smart and tell people, oh, you got all those microservices, <laughs> all those machine learning databases <laughs> yeah. and AI in the cloud. I got a solution for you. Well, we use a lot of mock services for integration testing, but I see how this would help in some cases. Is that creating a mock services? Is that one of the... I guess, strategies, if you didn't have something like telepresence, it, would that be? It? Yeah, I think that yeah. I think we talked to a lot of people about this and like some people have managed to make the mock thing work really well. It's sometimes it's a lot of work to keep all the mocks up to date and you have to kind of have a strategy. The problem happens, I think, usually when somewhere people kind of slip up when they don't make a mock for something and then suddenly they've got to connect to their gigantic Postgres database in the cloud, and it's like, oh, now we don't have mocks for everything anymore. Now everyone has to use the. And then, so people kind of slip out of, in many ways, great world of mocks, but mocks don't always, they don't always mock the things you want to test. And I think that it does depend a lot on what kind of application you have and which bit of it you want to test. I mean, we have a lot of this issue with ourselves internally with testing Docker Hub, like testing. A tiny little copy of Docker Hub isn't the same as testing a really big copy of Docker Hub because it just behaves differently. And so we have a, we have a staging Docker Hub that has a lot of data in it, not as big as the real thing, but it's but not a trivial amount because some things you want to test just behave differently with more data, and you don't want to suddenly break something, make something too slow in production because you didn't realize what it was how it performed with lots of data and things like that so there are all kinds of reasons why yeah or you might be you might be using a lot of you know amazon specific features and you don't um have good mocks for all of them because amazon doesn't always produce timely mocks for every new service they produce and things like that so there's a lot of reasons why people end up in one situation or the other and if you have great mocks for everything and you're happy and you can do everything locally, it is a really great situation to be in because it makes things are fast, things are easy. But an awful lot of people are just not in that situation in reality or not in that situation for all the kinds of things they want to test. Sometimes it works for some things and others as well. Oh, okay, I got another question that oh. came to me. Uh, is this going to require like a lot of crazy ports to open up between me and them? Sometimes I do something because I... I I don't know. I'm crazy, and I want to do something like when I'm sitting on that uh, in that JetBlue seat, and I'm using you know, thirty thousand feet up, and I want to try to connect. And then JetBlue has all sorts of ports closed. I mean, I'm I'm always in in places where the network isn't perfect. Uh, how is this going to work well in that scenario? I, well, I think so. Field trip is needed 
<laughs> and we should test it on Jack Blue. <laughs> it's uh, not part of our normal release testing. So I don't know the answer yeah, to that. Okay. But, uh, yeah, Michael, yeah. when are you going? When are you? I'm going on a plane on uh, Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think our uh, telepresence live stream demo. One of us needs to be in an airplane while we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. That just help. Yeah. Good luck, Brett, trying to keep us all together on the stream. Then. <laughs> yeah. That's. <laughs> I don't think it's crazy ports, says the person who's yeah. done some things with crazy ports recently. And it's like, you want me to publish all the ports to this container? <laughs> so all of them? <laughs> yeah, that's a question I hadn't thought about beforehand. So I'm not sure on that either. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. A good question. This, I mean, I'm assuming this answer is yes. Telepresence sounds cool for testing. IoT devices locally are chips, ARM, and x86 supported. So I guess. We're talking about it, it. This all works on an M1 or on an ARM device, right? And or you know, yeah, ARM V8. I don't know ARM V7 or not, but the remote yeah. cluster could be anything. Like you could have a remote x86 and a local ARM. That's a, that's another scenario too, because I still work with teams that haven't yeah, optimized you, you be, for local could, development because it's not running the same binary. So you can run a local ARM thing. It's just a service as far as the remote cluster is yeah. concerned. So it doesn't care if it's an ARM service running on an x86 cluster makes no difference to it yeah yeah it's just yeah forwarding the network traffic onto you so it doesn't matter architecture at that point all right computers are quite cool aren't they <laughs> so let's move on to scout because this is one that's been out a minute as i say a minute it's been out i don't know a month or two since the announcement not even a month 417 that was that's the latest release still as far as i remember there was a lot of stuff going on in 417 but then there was this little you know, oh, by the way, we got this whole thing and that created a new product page for something called Docker Scout. And tell me about it. Yeah, so it's still an early release. We're still shipping features. So we're in the learning the learning stage at the moment. So there's lots of stuff. There's lots more features to come. And so only parts of it are available now, but we're just trying to get feedback on what, what is there and what else you want. And so... Absolutely, there's lots of tools to come. There's a lot of work happening, and it, we was gradually shipping little bits of features before four seventeen. But four seventeen was when we kind of gave it a name. So it started out with Docker Desktop. It's got if you're using Docker Desktop and you have all like the default settings set, it just shows up as an advanced image analysis of vulnerabilities of all your containers and running on it's on images, but it shows up in containers as well. I think. Like it really lights up a lot of stuff that's going on there. There's almost like a need for us to have a show to go to see every little thing it does because it's deceptively complex. I'm trying to think of how to say that. <laughs> it, there's a lot going on there that you might yeah. miss, like recommendation yeah. engines, which are which are awesome. Yeah, and there's a lot. There's as I said, there's a lot more to come. And it, I mean, maybe we should do a show where you can explain like some of the bits that are coming because you can kind of sort of see some of that but it's not all it's not all visible yet yeah in fact while you're sitting here so funny story i am not a jekyll expert jekyll is the blog engine that's used on github and as a demo i showed off how to make sort of a, a simple little jekyll i extended the default jekyll image to provide more functionality it's now gotten pretty popular and people get upset when it breaks <laughs> Had recently, I had to do some performance analysis because it turns out there's a blessing, a, a great match of Jekyll version, Ruby version. I'm trying to remember their templating engine. Like you got to get all the right versions and then it suddenly goes like 10x faster. 
So that all happened. And I had to put a big banner warning on the repo that says, this is not for production use. It's just a little utility thing that I use on my local machine. It's not meant to deploy to a cluster. But I'm using it here because it is Ruby and Ruby's running on a Debian you know, image. So there's going to be vulnerabilities. Like it's, there's something in the tool chain that's definitely going to have something. And there is, like we definitely need a show to kind of go into everything I'm seeing here from the different images that I'm seeing and how it identifies which layers have the vulnerabilities and the fact that I can dive into each one of those seeing the individual CVEs, clicking on the CVE to go somewhere else to read about it. There's a view recommended base image fixes. A lot of this is in the GUI, but it's Mm -hmm. also in Hub. So you get like this, I mean, I sound like I'm your marketing department, but from someone who uses vulnerabilities, images with vulnerabilities every day, right? I'm working with teams that have vulnerabilities in them every day. And they're always trying to figure out how, like Alpine isn't always the answer. How do I manage these CVEs, reduce them? What's the right decision here? It's even got commands for how you might update this in your local tooling. Actually, the interface seems very similar to what you see in Hub. I can play what if and say, what if I did that? What part of this is Scout versus other? I mean, I see this in this kind of view or a lot of this view in my Docker desktop, but I'm a personal I have a, so I don't think I have access to Scout. You do. I mean, there's different parts of Scout, but we like a lot. The local image vulnerability information is available for free to everyone. But you can also, the paid programs are around access to vulnerability data on your images in registries. We support Docker Hub and also at the moment, and we're going to add others. So you can, you can link up your registries and see and get information about what's there. And basically, kind of behind the scenes of the product, it's, it's, we're basically making a big database of all the information, what's in the images. That's also why it's really fast a lot of the time. Sometimes it just is instantaneous because we've already done the work. We already know what's in that image. And then, you know, and some of the features that we're adding, I think it's a database of what's of the composition of the images. And then we have a, a database of CVEs and we get instantaneous notifications when there's a new vulnerability. We can give you, we can open, we have features that we've got in testing that we've been working on for a while, like things like opening a pull request when there's a new vulnerability or giving you Slack messages, letting you know what's going on, correlating what's you've got in production with which is the images that are important to update and things like that. So there's lots of work that's based on the data model that we're building behind the scenes. It's not all, you know, so the local, there's kind of what's in my local images is really, um, you know, what we think that everyone just needs out of the box in order to just understand their images. But having a data model of all the images in your organization is incredibly powerful. And that's what's, you know, that's what's the really advanced technology behind it. But we're definitely giving people access to this information. And there's lots more of it's going to be public as well. We'll be publishing the official image vulnerabilities and some of the other ones as well shortly, I think, if they're not out already. That's one of the big differences with this product is that it's not a point-in-time scan. It's a. It's even down at the bottom of the Docker Scout page. That's really why we've been investing so much into SBOMs lately, because once you've got this SBOM, now you know all the versions of all the things that are installed there. And so as new CVEs or new issues come out or whatnot, you've already got this document there that already outlines here's what's in that image 
And just as Justin was talking about, once you've got this data set of here are all S-bombs and what, everything that's in all the images, as new things come out, we can make those recommendations really easily. We can know what it, images are affected by particular CVEs or particular issues really quickly because of these capabilities. So again, just the start here, but uh, pretty excited. And honestly, one of the things I'm actually pretty excited about right where you are, that, that image hierarchy, every once in a while, I think it's kind of cool to say, hey, I'm pulling the node image. Oh, wait, I see that this is built on Debian or you know, like to actually see the that hierarchy in action here. I think that's a pretty cool thing just to also see how even a lot of the official images are based off of other official images. And I don't know, just that visibility to me is also a neat thing to see. Yeah. To me, it's like the image version of Git blame, GitHub blame, yeah. you know? It's like, whose <laughs> fault is this? Is this mine? Did I not do apt-get update properly uh, or whatever? So there's is certainly a lot to dig into here. It does, mm -hmm. I think, understanding CVEs, understanding how container images are built, it's all pretty, like, this is not day one Docker stuff, people. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is going to take, like, I think for a large team, I worked with a company that had hundreds of developers. This is this involves a lot of people to solve these problems traditionally. It's a developer. There's usually got to be a DevOps person or someone who's a little bit more aware of l Linux and the lower layers of images, because usually the developers tend to just focus on their app, and they know there's dependencies there, but they don't really know how they get there or that there's also OS dependencies. And then you got your security team who has their own requirements for how many, which and how many vulnerabilities they're going to allow in the production. And the challenge is that no one's really able to make decisions without the group, I see. Like the, a lot of times a developer, sure, if they can get rid of a CVE vulnerability in their app, great. But we're, we always talk about shift left security and we have things like sneak showing up in your VS code editor that will warn you of packages that are outdated in your app. And that's great, but that's not like, that's not all the problem, right? And we've got these other things, Debian dependencies, the from image dependencies that you can't maybe solve in your Ruby gems or your, your package yeah. JSON file. Yeah, absolutely. I think with some of the work we're doing, we're linking these different layers to the GitHub repos where where those images come from, and then we can open pull requests against the right repos so that the right people can fix it, and things like that. So that, a lot of that stuff is is being is being tested and being built, and it's really when that works, it, it's, it makes it totally different. So like the team that manages your base images gets the pull request to, to do the fix, and then you can concentrate just on your the pieces you put in your application afterwards, and it's a Understanding where the different layers come from or who built them is, makes it really, really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot, I'm a big fan of Dependabot for application and like GitHub action, automatic PRs for security updates. And that's to me, like part of my default workflow in GitHub, I kind of tend to take a day a week and just look at all those emails, all the emails you get from pull request, pull request, pull request, especially anything, uh, uh, Node.js. Oh my goodness. Oh my I've, goodness. Yeah. I've got so many updates. I have one repo that has like 30 different Node.js demos and it gets one every day at, at least once a day. And I'm looking forward to a future where we can also see this for Docker files. Like not necessarily, it doesn't have to be dependent bot, but like something where, hey, I've got a PR to fix your, the, not the application level, but the infrastructure level stuff in your Docker file. Yeah. This is what you should do, uh, and you know, I, and of course that future is going to involve G GPT at some point. Probably, <laughs> it's like we're gonna, have, I'm gonna have to have a conversation with a bot about my vulnerabilities in my image. I don't know. Yeah, I just, uh, it's on my mind. 
GitHub, whatever, Copilot X is out. And like every day we get a new GPT announcement. I, I want to mention real quick, James has, Docker Captain, James Spurin has a video on, he's pumping out the videos lately, but go check out his channel. It's dive into at it's youtube.com slash dive into. He does, he has a whole video explaining some of this stuff that's going on in Scout too. So thank you, James. And I was looking through the available extensions just randomly in, in Docker. And I saw that he's got a, a Docker extension, which looked pretty cool as well. So yep. fun things. Yeah. The Ansible one, is that the Ansible course one, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a new change too, right? Is that anyone can now make an extension mm -hmm. and put it into the marketplace. Is that what it's called? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. 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 So I'm getting daily little blue dots saying, there's a new extension. There's a new extension. So, I mean, the flood, <laughs> the floodgates are open, people. <laughs> and I think we've said this many times before on this show in the last year, but on the extent, the extensions was to me, it was the feature of 2022. Like it, it was, an, you released it in 2022. It was, it, it showed up. And I remember those early days before it was released, the captains were asked, what do you think about this extension idea? What would you make? And we, I don't think we all really understood at first what was possible because we didn't have a lot of great feedback for <laughs> Docker because it was maybe a few little things like image scanning was obvious, but I would have never said, um, I want to build an OpenShift cluster in Docker with a couple of clicks and do that without leaving Docker and downloading extra tooling. Or I want telepresence integrated into my Docker so that I can just click a bu couple buttons and, it, and I'm connected to a cluster, boom, I don't have to go brew something. And then, you know, there's just not a lot of these tools have their own GUIs. So the very fact that they're getting their first GUI out of an integration with Docker, I would have never predicted that. Yeah. It's been neat right. to see the number of extension creators that have also been like, by creating an extension, now they're tapping into the vast network of and the millions of people that are using Docker desktop. So it's making it a lot easier to get it in front of people as well. And so it's been neat to see the number of uh, companies and products and other tools and whatnot just uh, starting to flourish and actually do a lot more because of this extension platform. So it's it's been pretty neat to watch. Do you two uh, have any favorite extensions? Well, you know, just, just telepresence day to day. So it's, that's been pretty cool. A lot of other people are using that. Yeah. I, let's see, what would my favorite extension be? That's a good question. I mean, I've been playing with, so the ones I've been testing with just lately have been obviously telepresence. I've been using the tail scale one a little bit too and testing that out. The mutagen one, I've been playing with that one a little bit as well too, just to do a little bit of performance testing and whatnot, just to, I, I do a lot of React development and just other node stuff. So, yeah, any time I can do performance optimization improvements, that that's always a, a big plus for me as well. So. And then I think James would be sad if I didn't mention the Flappy Doc extension I made. I, I need to get that in the community marketplace there as well, too. So James, hold me to that. I'll get it in the marketplace for you. So. That's the key saying. I, I really want to build that Docker Swarm <laughs> Docker extension. Do it. It might actually be there. And that's called Portainer, which is, I think, one of the most popular True. extensions. Portainer is killing it in terms of yeah. downloads. People are, I mean, it's already so easy to install Portainer. But you can now just install it with a couple of clicks instead of a command line, a Docker run command. So that's another one out there that I definitely think, I mean, clearly by the download rate, I think it's one of the most, one of the favorites of people. So the last thing we should talk about real quick, I know we're running a little long. If you have a few more minutes is we just want to mention, like Justin is at the Wasm conference and yes. this just came out yesterday announcing the next technical preview. 
Yeah. So yeah, when we originally did our WASM work, we worked with WASM Edge. They came along and they wanted to work with us. And a lot of people thought, well, Docker and WASM Edge is like, this is what, what it's all about. But actually it was not really an exclusive thing. There's a lot of experimentation in WASM at the moment. Lots of people are doing interesting things. One of the things we wanted to do was really support more runtimes because you might think, oh, why do, should I care what WASM runtime I'm running? Cause like, it's just a WASM runtime. It runs WASM, but actually right now. They've got different APIs because there's a lot of things that haven't yet been standardized, particularly around networking. And so they all have slightly different ecosystems right now. So having a choice lets you actually run all the WASM applications that there are. So, so spin, for example, which is from Fermion is hence the reference to spin, you know, that, that has a different kind of networking model because it's not been standardized yet. And so. And it also has a whole bunch of other useful things in its toolkit. So it's great to be able to run the spin applications locally as a desktop as well. So it's really an extension of what we were doing before, but just really opening it up to the, the whole universe uh, of experimentation. Well, not quite all of it. There's, there's more runtimes that we still might have to store as well. <laughs> I was going to say, so yeah, this isn't run C then. It's, this isn't like one point release a year level of, you know, these are it's a young projects, rapid innovation. Not everybody's doing the same thing. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to work. We're trying to work out what are the features of Wasm that are important. What's going to be interesting about it? What's going to what's going to lead developers to make it less of a niche thing? So, really working on like working with the whole ecosystem to try and explore these areas. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot going on with Wasm. Lots of different ideas. Lots of different experiments. Lots of different types of applications that people are using Wasm for. So it's quite exciting. Yep. I should mention, by the way, we're going to probably have a future show with Nigel Poulton. If you remember, I did a video with him, essentially interviewed him <laughs> on an offline <laughs> video for mm -hmm. a Docker All Hands in December. And that was back when we had Technical Preview 1. And we had all come back from KubeCon where there was not a ton of Wasm sessions, but like there was more than zero. And there was a lot of talk. Docker's booth had the Wasm thing on it at the booth. So there was definitely conversations being had everywhere around what is this all going to mean? What is this all going to turn into? Can we predict the future of what I was calling at the time, Cloud Native WebAssembly or Cloud Native Wasm? It was, I don't remember anyone ever really saying that word, but we were all saying like Wasm on the server. And I mm -hmm. was feeling like, okay, this is going to all turn into eventually, if I had to predict, like... I'm going to have a Kubernetes cluster. I can run today, I believe, per node in Kubernetes. You can only run one architecture type per node, if I can remember correctly. Like, I don't think it's something built into Kubernetes, tell me if I'm wrong, to allow multiple architectures per node because it's just never really been a thing. But it seems like this is now something that we're going to be able to do. Well, I mean, WASM's not an architecture in that sense because it's just swapping out the runtime, the runtime which you can do mm -hmm. on a per pod basis so you actually do have the flexibility to mix wasm pods and non-wasm pods because it's not although it's, it's kind of like an architecture it's also not really an architecture so it's, it's hard it's to describe it in that way yeah because yeah, you are writing in the dash dash platform essentially you are writing a different os and architecture statement so it's not an architecture, but it's perceived in the configuration, I guess is maybe what I'm saying, as an architecture choice. Just remember that the Azure Kubernetes features, when they released their preview of us being able to run 
wazi wasm inside of Kubernetes clusters in Azure that you had to have a dedicated node pool for those workloads. And I was yeah, that may still be the case. I mean, I think yeah. Yeah, actually not sure. I think that may well be the case just from a manageability point of view. I mean, like mm. it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that, but it's kind of easier to configure things to run like that sometimes as well. So there's a lot of, it's still all quite early stage, but sure. um, I was talking to Ralph at Azure yesterday and he, we were, people are trying it out, running applications in Azure on it. So it's, it's you know, again, they, they would love feedback on, on, on that and whether it's working for a year and this preview two means you can run the same application locally as you do on on, on the Azure because we got this we support the same runtime now. So it's you can t- test it locally and deploy it to Azure now as well, which is great. Will the t- wasn't support be part of Docker Engine or will this stay a Docker desktop thing? I think you I can use it, it in Docker yeah. Engine too. Yeah, it's all you just have to we're not shipping it with the Docker Engine releases yet because it's really early, but you can just run it. You can install it yourself. Like there's, there's installed instructions. Like we kind of assume that if you use Docker Engine, you know how to put the bits together a, bit, a, little, a little bit. So you can read a command line instruction. Whereas you Docker Desktop, we like to make it. It's a little. It's still. It's still a bit of complexity in the config, which is still you know, it's using the container D backend and things. So it's not kind of trivial, but it's not that complicated. So. That's the same for other container D. Are they? plugins extensions runtime shims. i'm trying to remember yeah. shims yeah because there's yeah. other ones right that container d can use and you have to manually configure container d and install the binaries for that plug that shim so yeah it's just more of the same i guess yeah yeah so i was actually just looking up I, I was wondering if there's a list somewhere of container d shims all of the possible runtimes for container d because over the years a lot of people have had ideas for things that they could do with running in container D. I'm sure it's somewhere on the container D site, but I'm not. Well, I'm I think some of them it. are, but some of them, there's all sorts of things that I think that thing like AWS, like Fargate uses container D shims under the hood, but they don't like tell you about it. Certainly I'm fairly sure they built it with container D. So there's lots of places that people are using them, but, but yeah, there's a bunch of them uh, in the container D GitHub org. Um, but, yeah, you know, the Wazzy stuff's there. And, oh, that's um, right. Yeah, because some of them get sort of pulled into the ContainerD project, right? Like, it's sort of an acceptance process. There's a, there's runtimes and there's other things. There's like the Stargazer. We're on a little bit of a tangent. Yeah, but, the Snapshotters, yeah. Yeah, so we've, yeah. I know there was a conversation recently about Snapshotters, which... But yeah, Run Wazzy, like, that's the one we, that we've been contributing to and working on. So that's what we're using. There's a lot. There's a lot of repos. Yeah. Anyway, that I mean that that is server level operations nerd stuff. I feel like for sure that most people don't ever realize what Container D can do underneath. But yeah, it's cool that Docker has support for these other runtime shims. I'm trying to think if there's been any other ones that it could do uh, in Container you D can, before this. Yeah, I mean that's why we're moving it. We've been planning this for a while. We still it's still a work in progress doing the full migration to. Fully use container D and Docker. It's always been the plan. It was always part of the plan since the original thing, but it's like a difficult transition. You know, we shipped half of it, not the full runtime piece, but with the right. the other pieces. And there's still a bunch of work to do there, but it's getting there. You can turn it on a desktop and it mostly works now. Like we fixed a lot of the bell bugs and edge cases, but that's partly why we're doing it because there's a few APIs that different have to be shipped to work out the compatibility. Little just weird things if just trying to work because people use Docker in so many different ways. So we're still 
hoping to learn that pretty soon as and switch over to use container fully as the default, which will just mean this it'll be easier to use the WASM gems and things like that, and the rest of those things as you want. So yeah, soon. Yeah, soon. That's my favorite word on this show. Soon. I will have that soon. But you well, can I mean, test what, it now. Now you can test, you can it, test now. it. And, and, yeah, because what, what we're talking about is in Docker Desktop, there is a checkbox and you can choose to use yeah. more of Container D. You're already using Container D today, in case you didn't know people. You've been using it for a very long time, at least five, six years. All, it's yeah. basically just a piece of Docker that got pulled out. But you're replacing the engines in the air here. Like you're flying the ship. You don't want to break anyone's functionality, but you want to swap the engines out to give us a better path forward for more options and features in the future, I feel like. Because there's already new yeah. features we're seeing because if you enable the container D and Docker desktop for image storage, you then get additional benefits that, and I can only imagine you all are working on more stuff. And we were also trying to transition a bunch of other things, like the Docker v23 that came out recently, we now defaults to build kit. We've, we actually, we shipped over to defaulting in build kit and desktop quite a while back, but we're shipping, we're switching over for everyone. And again, that's part of gradually phasing out the non build kit hold the old mm. Docker build that we used right. to have. I still got to do some work on Windows to transition it for Windows containers, but mostly it's a lot of people have been using BuildKit for years. It's got all these great features, but it's like it still wasn't the default on Linux because we know that people are quite conservative and like don't want to pay things. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm teaching a course this week on using Docker's GitHub Actions and enabling BuildKit and. QEMU and all that fancy stuff. So it's something that people are still learning, like still learning about the advancements in Docker since they first learned it all of those years ago. By the way, happy birthday, Docker. We don't have, I don't have any, I don't have, I'll just, I'll just hit all the buttons for Docker. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't mention that on the show, but it is the 10th. I just put out a newsletter realizing that it was my 10th newsletter and 10th birthday of Docker this month. And technically, I think it was last week, but nobody really cares about the day. We just celebrate the month. It's funny how it's 10 years is a, a long time in software years, but it's, it's amazing what's happened in those 10 years because of Docker. Yeah. yeah. When you when you think about more than 10% of your life <laughs> has been focused around one tool, a technology tool, it does seem like a long a long time, but it's, and it's, and it's a testament to sort of like, we have this show today, 10 years later, we can't even fit everything in. People are asking me about V23 features. I'm like, it's, it's going to have to be a different show. Like we're going to, you want demo, you want demos on telepresence. It's going to have to be a different show. And yeah. even just to say too, while we were talking, there was another blog post that just went live of a partnership with a company called, or a group called Hugging Face of AI machine learning a partnership there as well too so that's where the whole nother conversation as well too so that there, there's just a lot going on for sure just the fact that it's called hugging face means i have to I try it i didn't know about this company but <laughs> the hugging face hub i'm not an ml person per se but yeah they're the friendly they're the friendly hugging face of the uh, they're the great people so i'm glad to be working with them yeah so yep. all right so we we're basically saying four more shows this year to catch up with what you've already done and then by then there'll be more stuff. More things to talk about. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for both of you for being here. This has been a great show. And thanks in particular, Justin, for being here since you're in Barcelona at a conference and you were able to, and your Wi-Fi has been great. The hotel Wi-Fi yeah. is, is yeah. working okay. solid, but we both appreciate you being here. Matt, thanks again, of course, for being co-host. You can find out all the information on all the stuff they talked about, links in the description. 
Links are everywhere, of course. So thank you so much, gentlemen. I will see you soon. Bye, everybody. Absolutely. Thanks, Brett. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.